the business of sharing medical advice, but we are in the business of connecting people and sharing our experiences with the hope of helping others. Information shared in this podcast represents the perspectives of the speakers and contributors. It does not constitute medical advice and is not an official recommendation of the Patient Advisory Council or Improved Care Now. Welcome to the Impact Podcast by the Patient Advisory Council, aka the PAC, where we will be talking about inflammatory bowel disease or IBD to increase awareness and inclusivity while connecting with you, each other, and our guests. As a disclaimer, this episode discusses body image, eating disorders, and weight. We encourage our listeners to continue listening at their own discretion. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Impact Podcast, hosted by members of the Patient Advisory Council of Improved Care Now. My name is Maha, and today I'm joined by Maddie and Fiona, two other members of the PAC. And today we wanted to continue our conversations from episode two about body image and relationships with food. To help us understand more about these topics, we have a very special guest today, Brittany Roman Green. Brittany is a virtual private practice registered dietitian and nutritionist, certified personal trainer, and behavior change specialist. She specializes in helping people with gastrointestinal conditions such as Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Brittany is a member of the Patient Education National Scientific Advisory Committee for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and she is also the national leader of the Registered Dietitians in IBD Practice Group for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. She's also a member of the RD Practice Group specializing in GI conditions and eating disorders. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brittany. We're so excited to have you on. Um, your expertise in this area is going to be so illuminating for us and all of our listeners. Um, to start, if you're comfortable, do you want to maybe kind of talk about like your personal journey with um, IBD, body image, and food? Yeah, definitely. So I started suffering from symptoms um, as early as fifth grade, but um, I didn't actually get diagnosed with ulcerative colitis until high school. Um, at the time I, you know, at the time of diagnosis, I was 20 pounds underweight. It was, you know, it was to the point where I had been suffering with symptoms leading up to that point. So it was, it was pretty bad by the time um, I had reached high school. Um, and in terms of, I guess, my relationship with my body image and uh, relationship with food, I grew up a dancer, actually. I was a, like, uh, you know, I did tap, jazz, ballet, point, hip hop. Um, and, you know, so you're, you're kind of surrounded by a bunch of other people. We're all looking in the mirror constantly at our flaws. And that's the whole point of like, making sure that try to be perfect in the mirror. And so that kind of facilitates, uh, you know, a distorted view of what your body looks like. Um, at least it did for me um, and a lot of my friends. And so that definitely didn't help my relationship with my body. And then I grew up surrounded by pretty much every woman 
um, around me, including my sisters, all had um, negative body image. You know, the adult females were all dieting um, and always talking negatively about their bodies. So that certainly also didn't uh, help my situation. And then, you know, being um, so underweight when I was first diagnosed around that same time, I actually like got discovered after an Usher concert by a model agency. And they, and you know, that I ended up not doing it because I think my parents thought I was gonna be abducted or something, but, um, but I think that also kind of plays into the whole feelings of like, oh, my body is somehow more beautiful now because I'm getting a lot of compliments <laughs> and I'm underweight and I feel terrible and I was just hospitalized and now I'm considered beautiful, you know? Um, so there's a lot of yeah. that, all of that kind of going in. Um, another component was that I, I realized like midway through high school that I was not going to be a prima ballerina because I'm like 5'11". Uh, so I switched to swimming full time. And so when I was in college, I swam competitively. And that's another thing where a lot of athletes, um, have a lot of, they become like rit ritualistic in a lot of, um, how they prepare for swim meets or games and stuff. So if you ate a certain food and did really well, then you want to eat that food and, mm -hmm. and you know, to, to hopefully do really well that next time. And so one year, you know, one year I made nationals. And so the next year I was like, well, I want to get back to that weight because at that weight I went to nationals. So maybe if I get back to the weight again, I'll be fast again. And so, which is obviously flawed because you want to be stronger than you were last year. You don't want to have the same times, but there's a lot of, you know, so all this kind of set me up to not have great body image. Um, my relationship with food, there was always food intolerances going on. Um, and I really did not eat very healthy growing up. Um, and so when I learned about nutrition in college, I was like, oh, I guess I shouldn't have three scoops of ice cream. <laughs> You know, like, and so I really drastically changed my diet and that helped me feel a lot better, but I was still struggling with some, um, some food intolerances because, um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately they don't really go into a lot of, um, at least at my college, they didn't really go into as much detail as I needed, um, uh, for Crohn's and colitis. So it wasn't, it wasn't very helpful. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of like struggling and trial and error, and then a lot of research on my own to kind of figure out what was really going to work for me. And, um, that's one of the reasons why I, you know, decided to specialize in this because I'm like, I should not like as a dietitian, <laughs> if I, if it took me this long to, you know, I mean, and I've been symptom free for years now, but like if it takes a dietitian this long to figure it out, then like, what does that mean for people who don't have that education, you know? And, you know, it's just, so I want to like help people with that. And um, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I, you hit on a, a bunch of really important topics, but one of the things you mentioned was 
feeling more seen as beautiful um, when you were sick or thin. And I know that we have a lot of um, clinicians listening into the podcast, and I think it's important for us to talk about how providers can change their language around weight in clinic. Um, and even just parents or friends of people who are chronically ill, how you can healthy uh, change your language to be more healthy surrounding weight. Because I know that when I was first diagnosed, I was really underweight, like a lot of patients. And I was always, oh, Maddie, the, the language around it was, oh, Maddie, you're so th- tall, you're so thin, um, you look like a stick. And nobody thought that it was unhealthy. And then when I gained the weight for mental nutrition, there wasn't the same, oh, you look so healthy, your cheeks are so rosy, you look so happy. Um, there wasn't that same affirmative language surrounding the health side of it. It was all image. Um, so I think I would encourage listeners to be aware of how they're using their words, um, especially around young women and young women's bodies. Yeah, I would definitely second that. And I would say, I would also add, there's really no need to mention anything about someone's body. Absolutely. I was just going to say that. Yeah. (laughs) Like there really is no need for that. Um, You know, there are some people with IBD who are born in larger bodies and, you know, it's very hard for them to like have their practitioner tell them that it's a good thing that they had unintentional weight loss when that's, that's not, that's not the case, you know? Um, yeah, there's really no, there's no need for um, focus in on weight. We can talk about how food makes us feel. We can talk about exercising in a way that's going to make us feel good, but no need to talk about weight. Yes. Yeah, I definitely agree with everything that we all have been saying. Um, I think another point that you said was sort of like on the athletic side of those associations with food and athletic performance. And like, if I ate this, I did this. And I think that almost translates into something that a lot of IBD patients experience of like associating food with feeling bad. And then it can, food becomes like a scary thing and you don't want to try new foods um, because there's just so many associations with like food and ending up feeling terrible. Yes. I know that happened a lot for me, Um, especially when I was flaring, I would notice this really strong correlation between, oh, if I eat 10 minutes later, I'm going to feel nauseous. And so then it was like, oh, maybe I could skip this meal here or there. Um, And it was really hard to differentiate at a certain point. What is um, what, what Maddie is trying to do, like, what is Maddie trying to do here? Am I trying to lose weight or am I trying to, um, to avoid symptoms? And it gets really muggy in that area. I a hundred percent relate. And for me, I feel like the saddest part was just, it just took all the joy out of food. Like I, I think one of my, like, before I was diagnosed, um, I, um, my disease was pretty severely active um and I had a really extreme loss of appetite but when you go to my camera roll and I was like just looking at this yesterday um you'll see so many screenshots of all these recipes and like okay thinking about it like I'm getting a little like it's like a little sad to think about for me because like I was just trying so hard to eat to like to like food in the way that I saw my family like food to like food the way that I saw my friends like food but I was, I just wasn't hungry ever. And 
I was like trying to force myself to be hungry to like be a foodie or whatever um and it's like and then you know after I was diagnosed and um, treatments and everything I also did enteral nutrition um then I was after that I kind of like still struggled with similar feelings because I was I didn't I was like on a, a more restrictive diet and I was just feeling very lost because I had all these cravings and I couldn't figure out how to like work with them or like even the foods that I was eating just like became like so similar that I was just like I I don't see a difference in what I'm eating like at a certain point it became like oh I'm eating to survive but I'm not eating because I genuinely like the taste of what I'm eating or whatever um so I think it's like really important to recognize like that um psychological impact of it too um yeah yeah there was actually a research study that suggested I think it was it was either 70 or 75 percent of the people in the study reported a drop in appetite and pleasure of eating since their diagnosis which I was like insane you know then people are surprised when they hear that one in every four IBD, you know, people with IBD have an eating disorder. Um, And a lot of what you guys were mentioning, like the food preoccupations, skipping meals, um, you know, and then like certainly a lot of people have, you know, follow restrictive diets. Um, They do things around, have like guilt or shame around eating certain foods or loss of control. All these things are so common in people with IBD and those are all the same things as disordered eating, you know? Yep. So it's, yep. it's so closely connected. It's all it's, rooted in that fear around triggering symptoms. Right. And it can like, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, um, Brittany, could you talk about a little bit for our listeners, the difference between eating disorders and disordered eating in IBD patients in case they don't know? So the so the main difference is that eating disorders are um it's like the american psychological association they have to hit certain criteria for those diagnostic um, eating disorders um some of uh, really i see kind of the whole gamut i see people with anorexia nervosa bulimia you know binge eating disorder. I just had someone last week um, that dropped the charts for that. And so I referred um, to get that diagnosis out at a psychiatrist. Another big one, you know, and then I actually, a few weeks ago, um, just based on what a client was saying, I was like, let's actually have you do this assessment. And she did it and um, she scored high um, and she didn't hit the criteria for any of those other ones, but she hits the criteria for an actual eating disorder. So it's like eating disorders, not otherwise specified. And then another common one that I I probably see the most often is um, ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And that's basically like, if you, I mean, I, I can't diagnose anyone with eating disorders, but um, I always screen all my patients for eating disorders um, now. And 
depending on what they say to me, um, I will screen for certain eating disorders. Um, and then if they score high enough to technically hit that criteria, I'll refer them to a psychologist. But um, for disordered eating, those are kind of those, it's signs and symptoms of um, any sort of practices that are different from the cultural norm. So um, preoccupation with food, weight or body image, self-imposed restrictive diets that leads to anxiety after eating certain foods, um, skipping or delaying meals, chronic weight fluctuations, rigid, uh, rigid rituals around um, food or exercise, uh, feelings of guilt or shame around eating certain foods, having a loss of control around foods. Um, and yeah, any time of any, anything related to like using exercise or food restriction in a way to like make up for bad foods that you consume, things like that. So those would be kind of the disordered eating practices. And then if you hit the criteria for those eating disorders, it's, um, you would then be diagnosed with one of those. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. And when you're talking earlier, you kind of mentioned fad diets or um, diets intended to lose weight. So what do you think about, what is your opinion about unsolicited diet advice or misinformation about fad diets, specifically in relation to IBD and maybe how does this affect IBD patients in particular? So, yeah, I think um, fad diets can be very harmful, basically, um, in short. But, you know, I think also there's a lot of, I think it's hard because a lot of people, especially when you're first diagnosed with IBD and you ask, oftentimes people ask, what should I eat? And then there's a lack of support around what to eat. So then people will go online and that is probably the worst thing that you can do because then it's, it's just that everything's conflicting. If you try one diet, it becomes more of like a fad diet. Like you were saying, you, you follow it because it's so restrictive, you can't follow it for the long haul. So it's a few weeks and then you fall off and you feel guilty. Um, you know, you sometimes I have clients that stack two diets on top of each other. Um, a lot of people will like then only be following or only be eating a few different meals or a few different foods that they deem safe. Um, yeah, all of this can lead to unplanned weight loss, nutrient deficiencies. Um, it can also affect your mental health as we, we all know, like, you know, it can lead to depression, um, isolation from friends because then you can't really feel like you can't go out to dinner with them or eat with them. Um, and certainly like reduced pleasure in eating. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Does anybody have anything to add to that? Well, I think that was a great question and discussion. I think it's something that's like really common in today's world, just because that's so much of like the culture of dieting and like yep. even like Instagram and, you know, modeling and everything that you see is filtered or like gone through something so I think there's so much misinformation or incorrect information out there that it's really easy to fall into those traps 
And it makes me so frustrated that these kind of um, diets or advertising is aimed towards um, the most vulnerable people on social media, mm-hmm. the people that feel the most insecure about their bodies, the people who are sick and or don't have control of their bodies, um, women, uh, minorities that feel like they have to look beautiful in order to get employment, things like that. Um, it, it makes me so frustrated that these kind of um, ploys are, are taking agency away from people who need more agency. Exactly. That was like perfectly said. Yeah. Wonderfully said. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. (laughs) The thing that I would add to that is like the, you know, I think also when people in those vulnerable situations in a flare and you're not feeling great and you want to just like, we all just want to do everything that we possibly can to feel our best, you know? And so when someone's dangling, you know, remission in front of you or quote unquote healing your condition your disease of course you're going to want to like take that um jump jump into it but i think that's also what can get people in a lot of trouble is what comparing their treatment plan and their diet to other people who you know we don't really know what this random person on youtube like maybe they're lying you know maybe they're just like making something up. Maybe they have actually really mild disease severity and, you know, they don't work and they're, they're able, they don't have any stress in their life. And, you know, maybe that works for them, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for everyone. And it doesn't mean that just because they're in remission doesn't mean that's necessarily a healthy thing for them to do. You know, so I think it's really hard when it's enticing and yet um, never a good idea to compare your treatment plan to someone else's for that and, you know, many other reasons, but yeah. I really like that. Um, I had, um, read one of, um, Brittany's articles or videos, like talking about, um, disease severity and like why you shouldn't complain, uh, compare your treatment plan to, uh, someone else's and is, very very helpful for me to understand but also like now when I get like unsolicited unsolicited medical advice from like just random people or people that I know um I can be like hey like I know your intentions are good but like just so you know like not everyone's the same so I like you know have a care team that's like taking care of me has we have like a treatment plan um but I think it's like important because like like exactly like you said, what works for some people doesn't work for any everybody else. So, you know, to anybody listening, like if you want to give advice to your friends, just know that like, just, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've probably all seen the celery juice cleanse. Um, <laughs> it, it annoys me so much, this, this kind of trying to entice people in, preying on yeah. vulnerabilities and doing something that is going to harm them in the long run. absolutely and I think like number one celery juice is gross but (laughs) (laughs) it's like at least make it something tasty but yeah um (laughs) but yeah I think a lot of us are a lot of people with IBD are so like again we all just want to do everything that we possibly can and I feel like diet is you know there's so many things that we cannot control about our disease 
that diet is something we can control. So it's natural to want to control that, but that can lead to disordered eating patterns and rigidity, you know, with the diet and all of that. I know, you know, um, I think a lot of us just put, you know, like a lot of people follow these restrictive diets and, and become very, I guess, strict about them because they still kind of blame themselves for having that or being in a flare, you know? And that is very, I, it hurts my heart, you know, because I, I know I've experienced that feeling as well. And actually um, a few months ago, I did a, present, a virtual presentation and I was kind of giving some tips on like, you know, for a trigger food, instead of just restricting it, you know, out of your diet, either, you know, there's two options, either A, find a better tolerated alternative that you can tolerate and put it in, in its place, or B, just eat it anyways, and just enjoy it. And maybe you will have symptoms, but sometimes it's worth it, you know? And there's a guy who said something like, um, but why would anyone do that? Why you gave a good, a valid, you know, um, you know, option, just, they should just find the better tolerated alternative. And I just, in that moment, I felt like a lot of empathy towards him. Cause I could just sense, like, I knew I had a feeling that he was following a restrictive diet and he was in that mindset of like, I have to do everything perfectly so that I don't go back into this flare or, you know, it's like so much pressure that people put on themselves around diet and being like, you know, and living this perfect lifestyle. It's like, oh, careful. Don't want to get stressed. I don't want to trigger a flare, you know? <laughs> and the thing yeah. is, like you said earlier with, with like talking about diets and stuff, like they're usually not super sustainable. And so when you're on like a very strict diet and you do something not in that diet, you immediately, at least for me, and I would get like, I would feel guilty, I'd feel shameful. And it, it's just not a good feeling. And and I really like what you said. I was, oh, by the way, I don't know, disclaimer, like I've worked with Brittany before. That's one of like my favorite things I think I've learned from you. Um, Cause I was, I was just thinking about how like a week ago, I was really, really craving these like, um, like instant noodles so like these Indian instant noodles um and I haven't had them in like a very like months and months like maybe even years um and I was like oh like you know I really just want to eat them and I did and I did experience symptoms but it was like I didn't feel guilty and I didn't feel shameful because I was like you know what like like it's been so long like I like I don't know like maybe it's I'm hurting myself more by being like, no, you can't have that. Um, and like, it's not like I eat it all the time. I have um, other noodle type stuff that I love that totally works for my body. But I think it's just like this all or nothing mindset that's very easy to have when you have a chronic illness because some days are all or nothing. Like some situations are all or nothing. So like after years of just being on survival mode, like I started treating food also like as a as a means to survival as opposed to something that I could actually enjoy. And I think that has been the biggest shift in my thinking 
since I actually started working with you and um, trying to get to the root of the behaviors I was um, exhibiting around food. Yeah, wow. I think that really speaks to, I guess, like you brought up Maha, the all or nothing attitude. And I think that hits on the idea that Brittany was talking about, like of as an IBD patient, you feel like you you want to do everything in your power to like feel better, but like, that's a really high standard to hold yourself to all the time. Like it's going to break down eventually. And I think that's where that guilt comes from of like, once it breaks down and maybe you end up in a flare, then you feel terrible about what you did. And you feel like it's all your fault when in reality you were already like holding yourself to this unrealistic expectation to be perfect. Yeah. And as patients, we've had to comply with super rigid treatment regimens. We're used to that mm-hmm. kind of um, almost <laughs> grading type, like perfection of, or at least for me, like I try to be very treatment compliant. <laughs> um, but I've also done nutritional therapies for my inflammatory bowel disease. And so there becomes, again, these kind of fuzzy lines between what is food as enjoyment and what is food as medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a lot of growth work to find that it can be both at the same time. Um, yeah. and that I can have a healthy relationship with food and have food be medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Great. I definitely agree with that. I think that, you know, there's so many people who eat bland diets or eat certain things because they think that that's going to be helpful for their symptoms, but it's like, but then the enjoyment is completely out of your diet. You know, I'll, I'll never forget. There was this one client I started working with. And the first time we met, I remember like, I remember feeling really bad because his, um, he was clearly depressed and he actually was used to be a vegan and like really missed a lot of those foods, but he was told that he should be a low fiber diet, um, as a lot of people have been told, um, without any evidence to recommend it anyway. Um, and, uh, he was like very depressed about it because he loved those foods. And so basically within a week time frame, because we started to slowly add them back in, I mean, one week, his face lit up like a different person. And I remember, I didn't say anything at that time, but like at the end of the program, I was like, I remember you physically changing into like, like food may is so much more than fueling your body. And a lot of people don't understand that, I think. And it's like, when we go on these restrictive diets, I think a lot of times people go on these diets to avoid certain medications or, you know, things like that. But because they're worried about the side effects of medications, but you don't think about the side effects of these restrictive diets on your mental health, on, and on actually your physical health. Like, is it going to be very stressful to have to cook everything from scratch all the time? Um, you know, is it going to be very stressful to never eat outside the home, you know, and then also trying to maintain it and not being satisfied with what you're eating? you know, um, and then having those guilt, the guilt that comes with it when you do eat something that's quote unquote illegal on the specific carbohydrate diet list, yeah. you know? So. 
Well, and Brittany, when you mentioned his face really lighting up when he was able to have those foods, um, I think about, yes, there's this huge cultural, emotional aspect of food, um, but there's also the microorganisms to think about in our guts. And the little that I understand about <laughs> our, our microbiomes is that they're so important for our um, neuro, neurochemistry and the regulation there and our serotonin production. And um, fiber is such an important part of keeping our microbes healthy. And um, it, it makes me frustrated and sad to hear so many patients being recommended low fiber diets when of course, yes, you have to listen to your body and yes, you have to eat what, what your doctor prescribes, but you, you should follow medical recommendations. But I, I've also had wonderful experience with high fiber diets and um, listening to my body. I like to view my, my microorganisms as like I'm my own little universe inside of me and trying to fuel myself as I would want to see the world taking care of the world. Um, I love so, that. Yeah, it's just another little I image. Yeah, and that could not be more true, like more accurate. The, you know, a, a plant, the more fruits and vegetables in your diet, the better for your gut health and your bacteria. The more varied your diet, the better, you know, you're able to introduce more um, diverse, um, you know, beneficial gut bacteria. Um, and yeah, there's, it's, it's shocking to me that people are still being put on a low fiber diet or a low residue diet, low residue diet has actually, to my knowledge, zero scientific evidence for. What's the difference between a low fiber diet and a low residue diet? Well, that's a good point because that's the other thing. Residue is not really, um, there, there's <laughs> no research on it. So, I mean, mm -hmm. there's like some from, I think the 1800s in dogs. So, about <laughs> Great. but yeah, we've been put on. So basically what, you know, uh, if anything, we, no one should be avoiding a uh, fiber unless your doctor told you otherwise. Um, but yeah, most people can tolerate fruits and vegetables. It may just need to change up the texture of the fruit and vegetable to make it better right. tolerated or, you know, change how your body accepts the fiber, but yeah. Yeah, um, I was gonna say, oh, sorry. no, go ahead. I, I was gonna say, um, when you were telling the story about um, that guy, I definitely relate because I had very similar experiences. Like, I, I don't know, I feel like I tried a kiwi for the first time, like my heart like erupted in joy. I was just like so happy. Cause I was just, I, I was on low fiber and then I did EN, I did SCD, and I don't want to bash any of these diets. Like my time on SCD definitely helped me and helped a lot of my symptoms, but it was just that there was no like guidance. Like there, there, at least for me, like I didn't really feel like anyone was checking in, checking for disordered eating or like how this diet may be affecting my personal life, mental health. And then after about, I don't know how long it was, a year, maybe longer on the SCD diet, I think I was starting to get, feel dissatisfied with that I was eating and everything. Um, and there wasn't much guidance from my care team on how to like transition to a different diet or like, what do I do now? And I think people really underestimate like how hard it is to like make these decisions, especially when you have the kind of fear that comes from having symptoms in a disease that's so closely related with food and everything um I remember I think 
after like one a, a nutritionist I had um talked to once just gave me a list of things and said go at it and I was like I can't I don't know how to tell you but I can't I just I physically cannot like just like jump like I can't jump and um I don't know I just think I would going forward I would like to see like more awareness about like how tough it is like with relationships with food um and maybe a little bit more nuanced care around that because I think um the throw everything at the wall approach did not well I was too scared I didn't even try it I was too scared um yeah well and I think it's so hard when you are coming from like you know exclusive ventral nutrition and also you know and that's that's something that I'm frankly kind of concerned about don't get me wrong I think EEN is amazing and it can be so, you know, helpful for a lot of people. But to your point, the, like, no, I, I, you know, I doubt every single patient is being screened for an eating disorder prior to be putting in that diet, Um, you know, uh, and then also checked and, and talked, you know, and asking if like, you know, they need to checking in to see if there's any disordered eating feelings coming up and also through that transition to the yes and it might be re-traumatizing for someone who has a pre-existing eating disorder like we don't know I just there isn't really any I don't I don't see a lot of awareness around this topic in medical settings um but yeah I think we're about ready to wrap up um just like as a final question, um, kind of to our listeners, anybody listening, um, what advice would you have um, to patients or really anybody who wants to work on their diet, their relationship with food and or body image um, and where should they begin? So I'm obviously biased. I feel like everyone should work with a registered dietitian to, to get that like individualized support, but If that's not possible, if you're not, if you don't want that, that's fine. Some things that you can do on your own. Um, The book Intuitive Eating by Evelyn Triboli and um, Elise Reich um, is is definitely a book that I'd recommend for um, rebuilding your relationship with food. It is geared more towards eating disorders, but I apply it to my um, IBD clients all the time. Um, Health at Every Size is also a really great book um, that's with the concept of, you know, stop focusing around the weight instead of, you know, focusing in on what's going to make you feel good. Um, I'm currently reading the book Body Respect. So that's another um, book. There's a podcast, if you guys are into other podcasts, um, called Food Psych um, by Christy Harrison. And she's a registered dietitian. She's, I think she specializes in helping people with eating disorders, but, um, but she actually has had some IBD patients on at times. So um, who are advocates Whoa. for body positivity. And I think it's just a great podcast to listen to. Um, 
I would also recommend to always put on like comfortable clothes. Don't go with the tight ones, you know, go with something that's going to make you feel good about yourself on a daily basis. Um, stop following people on Instagram or any other social media that makes you feel bad about yourself in any way. Um, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think those are the main and then I guess around diet, I would say try not to follow restrict. If you feel restricted on your diet at all, I would reach out and talk. If, if you can do it, I would reach out to talk to a dietitian to get support so that you don't feel restricted so that you can improve your relationship with food before it gets to the point of an eating disorder. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brittany, for sharing your experience and your expertise. It's been really wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was fun. And I really, you know, applaud you guys for doing all of this work. And um, I wish I was as um, outspoken as you guys are in this field um, and as confident in your IBD as you are. Um, it's your great role models for those younger and older, actually. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I think we all learned a lot and I hope our listeners do as well. Yes. Thank you so much. If this content resonates with you, we encourage listeners to learn more about Improve Care Now and the PAC at improvecarenow.org, where you can sign up to join the PAC, the parent working group, and join our circle.